welcome to the ZSL Wild Science Podcast. I'm Ellie Darby, the Scientific Events Coordinator here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. This is a sad day for the Wild Science Podcast for reasons I will explain later, but it's also an exciting day for me as it's my first ever time hosting a podcast episode, so please bear with me. You may be wondering where Moni is, but thankfully she is our first guest, so all will be revealed shortly. But first, let's get on with the show. Today's episode is all about putting reptiles on the conservation map. Reptiles, that is lizards, snakes, turtles and crocodilians, make up almost one third of all land vertebrate species on Earth and also occur in many marine and freshwater systems. Yet, despite their amazing diversity, reptiles remain hugely underrepresented in conservation research and action when compared to mammals, birds, and even amphibians, and our knowledge of the extinction risk of reptile species has traditionally lagged behind other taxa too. But this is changing, as global efforts to put reptiles on the conservation map have increased. ZSL has played a big part in this, leading several advances in reptile conservation research and engaging with key collaborators in this field. Today we're lucky enough to be joined by some of the scientists working to push the global conservation agenda for reptiles, who will be telling us all about the fascinating yet threatened world of reptiles and their efforts to save our scaly friends. Now remember I told you not to fret, because our first guest on today's episode is someone you might recognise the sound of. It is of course Dr Moni Boom, a research fellow here in the Institute of Zoology at ZSL. Moni's work focuses on the sampled red list index, which measures trends in the extinction risk of many taxonomic groups. But she is also involved in the National Red List Project and is the Red List Authority Coordinator and Chair of the IUCN SSC Butterfly Specialist Group. So basically, Moni, you could say you're queen of the red list, which sounds like a pretty cool Game of Thrones name to me. <laughs> I mean, I am pretty much a Game of Thrones free zone. I have to admit that. Um, but I would personally prefer mother of red lists. That's fine. Although, I mean, I, I could list many people who this title would fit much more. But yes, I've spent a lot of time on red list assessments in the past. Well, first things first, your work sounds incredibly diverse from that very brief introduction. And I've heard you declare yourself a taxonomic jack of all trades. So why focus on reptiles and what's so special about them? Why reptiles? That's a good question. So I should probably start by pointing out that they're very important players in the world's ecosystems as predators, as prey, herbivores, sea dispersers, some even as pollinators. But personally to me, it's much more about their amazing diversity in shape, in color, in size. You get really tiny chameleons that are like the size of a fingernail. You get huge saltwater crocodiles that are like up to six meters in length venomous snakes, limbless lizards, flying lizards are probably more like gliding lizards, turtles with snake-like necks, giant tortoises, giant things are always really cool. And you get reptiles not only on land, but also in freshwater and in the sea too. So in short, they're pretty amazing. And of course, often overlooked in conservation efforts. So thankfully that started to change over the past decade or so. So I've got to ask you straight away, if you had to pick from this weird and wonderful group of species, what is your favorite reptile or reptile fact? And I think I already know what your answer might be. Yes. I mean, I already know what my answer is going to be, but technically you were asking for two answers. So right. my favorite reptile has to be the Komodo dragon, largest monitor lizard in the world and simply amazing. Feel free to insert a Game of Thrones reference here if you want to. <laughs> Uh, my favorite reptile fact, some turtles breathe through their bums. You can't really beat it, right? I knew it. 
<laughs> no, you can't beat it. It's a great fact. It seems like there are a lot of different ways of assessing reptiles' conservation status, but for our listeners who may not have heard our entire back catalogue and missed episode 15 of this podcast series all about biodiversity indicators, I'd like to start by asking what the sampled red list index is. Why do we need to assess this for reptiles? Let's start with the basics. As a really quick intro, the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species, which is what this biodiversity indicator that you alluded to is based on, essentially is a way in which we can assess the extinction risk of species at certain time points. So there have been assessments for many species for the IUCN Red List. So probably the earliest incarnations of the Red List have had a bias towards mammals and birds, for example. The Red List Index then is an IUCN product that is a biodiversity indicator which was developed for groups that had been comprehensively assessed, so for which all or nearly all species had their Red List assessments done. So for example, for mammals, for birds and so on. And then if we do reassessments for these groups, we can see if their extinction risk status has improved or declined over time. In short, we have a biodiversity indicator. Now, the sample red list index is kind of like the sibling of the red list index. And the idea was to produce an indicator of extinction risk over time for a large number of species groups that have many, many species in them that are highly diverse in terms of their species richness. Now, reptiles at the moment, for example, there are around 11,000 species of reptiles that we know of. But think of some invertebrate groups, for example, where species numbers may be even higher we would not be able to assess each and every species in this group. And so this is where the sampled red list index comes in. The method really was developed here at ZSL, and we essentially started by testing what sample size we would need to accurately depict the trend in a species group overall. So it's a bit like polling a species group to make sure that we get the right picture in terms of where the extinction risk trend is going. And so this magical sample size number ended up as 900 non-data deficient species, i.e. 900 species for which we have the data that we need to assess their extinction risk. Or if we want to include the fact that quite a lot of these species in these lesser known groups may be actually data deficient, we bumped this up to 1,500 species. And so this is the, the sample size that we went in and applied to a large number of groups that had really many species in them to include them into this red list index as well. And reptiles were part of this, as were various other groups. At the time, reptiles really were one of the two vertebrate groups for which we knew very little, the other being fish, which was also included in the sample red list approach. We also had a relatively good species list available for reptiles, which really is the base requirement for running an assessment. And we knew that there were many experts out there working on reptiles in the field, either in terms of taxonomy or field ecology and so on. And so at the same time, also a global assessment of all reptiles started up the global reptile assessment uh, run by the IUCN. So we really had all the pieces in place. We had a method for sampling, a species list and experts and capacity to run such an assessment. So reptiles were in. Amazing. That sounds like an incredible combined effort. What was the most important or surprising finding? So we found that around one in five reptiles are threatened with extinction, which is a higher threat level than birds, for example, slightly lower than that found in mammals. And we also found that turtles and tortoises are by far the most highly threatened group of the reptiles, and that snakes had the lowest threat levels when we did our assessment. So not really surprising. We figured that reptiles might actually be as threatened as other vertebrate groups, but for the first time, we could actually put this in numbers. So an important step 
step forward for reptile conservation, but not a great outlook for them. So for the sampled red list index, you map and assess the red list status for the species in your sample. Side note, if you'd like to go behind the scenes of the IUCN red list, check out episode 10 of this series. But anyway, we know there are so many more reptile species out there than just the 1,500 in the sample. So to properly safeguard reptile diversity, do we not need to scale up our efforts? And how can we do this? Yes, so the sampled red list index really gives us an overview of the status and trends of reptiles as a whole. But to properly put in species conservation action, for example, we do need to scale up our efforts because we probably want to know what other species are doing as well, right? Thankfully, other assessment processes are available. <laughs> um, so I already mentioned the global reptile assessment, and I'll get back to that in a minute. But another project that came about uh, focused on the global distribution of reptiles. So where are areas with many species, areas with few or devoid of species, areas where we can find many range-restricted or endemic species, for example? Where should we best focus our conservation action geographically? So around the same time that the sample redist project started, another project started up as well called the Global Assessment of Reptile Distributions, or GARD. And this project is led by researchers at Tel Aviv, Ben-Gurion and Oxford universities and has drawn together really a network of experts from around the world to map the spatial distribution of every single reptile species that we know of. Now, ZSL was also part of this project. And just thinking back to the start of this project and also the start of the sampled red list project, the number of reptiles we knew of was around 8,000. This has now grown up to 11,000. So you can imagine how this project had to play catch up pretty much from the, from the word go, given the high description rates of, of reptiles. Now, a few years back in 2017, I think the findings were published. And for the first time, we could map the species richness of all reptiles and compare these distribution patterns to that of other groups of tetrapods like birds and mammals and amphibians. And what we found really is that the species richness of all turtles, of snakes, that all very much aligns with the patterns we've already observed in other groups. But lizards looked really different with really high species richness in the hot interior of Australia. Who knew? <laughs> um, so, so that's really funky. Of course, overall, with this assessment, once we know where most species of reptile are located, we can start looking at spatial conservation priorities for this group. So that was a big step. And lastly, and very briefly, I already mentioned the global reptile assessment, which essentially does red list assessments for all species of reptiles. Now, this is about to draw to a close and the results will be published later this year. So then not only do we know where reptiles are, where their distributions are, we can then also couple this with assessments of their extinction risk to make even better decisions about where to focus conservation attention. So a real breakthrough and really putting what we know about reptiles for the first time more or less on par with what we know of mammals and birds and amphibians. So really cool. So this distribution information feeds directly into conservation action. Is that, is that right? Yes. I mean, we need to keep our foot on the pedal, really. it's So far, we've managed to fill a lot of knowledge gaps. But of course, what's really important is that we now take all of this data, all of this new knowledge about species and make sure that they feed into these many mechanisms that are already available in terms of conservation planning. One example is delineating key biodiversity areas. So areas which are of international importance in terms of biodiversity conservation. So we really can't stop now. We need to turn assessments into action. That's the next step. Okay. It sounds like there's a lot of work still to come for protecting reptiles and their diversity. But to end this positively, what do you think are the major 
major achievements of the last decade that have helped to put reptiles on the conservation map? I mean, uh, of course, these three assessment processes in themselves have made sure that there's a lot of attention being put on reptiles. But I think the biggest achievement is just how these three projects have galvanized such a huge network of reptile experts from taxonomists to field ecologists for reptile conservation. Now, because if we want effective action for our little scaly friends or our enormous scaly friends in the (laughs) case of the Komodo dragon, we need many of us working towards the conservation in all parts of the world. So this is a major achievement. And finally, Moni, I promised the listeners a grand reveal. Why are you not interviewing yourself in today's episode? Grand reveal. I kind of want to go for a fanfare. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Why am I not interviewing myself, right? I mean, usually I love talking to myself. Actually, what happened is that I decided that it's time for a change. So here's the grand reveal. I have left ZSL at the end of January and moved to a new position at the Global Centre for Species Survival, which is based at Indianapolis Zoo. Now, this Global Centre is a brand new partnership between Indy Zoo and the IUCN Species Survival Commission to support the activities of the IUCN. That's by the way, I use that a lot, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. So what we're going to do in the Global Centre is to support their activities and, and really help push forward a global species conservation. So my new role is as freshwater coordinator. So it, it entails less podcasting probably, but will hopefully help to achieve much more conservation action. So Moni is leaving some very big podcast hosting boots to fill. And I know she will be hugely missed at ZSL and already is. I'd just like to take this moment to thank you for creating creating this amazing resource originally with Jennifer Howes and successfully making serious scientific topics hopefully more accessible and definitely more enjoyable for our listeners. So thanks, Moni, and thanks for joining us today. I'm sure we will be hearing from you again in a future episode. I really hope so too, because I will, of course, miss the Citizen Wild Science podcast, but I see it's in excellent hands. <laughs> I mean, from the Game of Thrones reference, all I can say is the popular references will be much more current <laughs> and less obscure. So- I'll do my best. <laughs> Our next guest joining us today is Ricky Gums. Ricky is the postdoctoral research scientist for ZSL's Edge of Existence program, where he is responsible for developing edge species lists, overseeing various research projects, exploring how to conserve the tree of life. Reptiles feature prominently in Ricky's research, and he has supervised several of Edge's conservation projects on threatened reptiles worldwide. He recently completed his PhD at Imperial College London, so congratulations Ricky, and thanks for joining us today. Your particular area of research focuses in on how we can prioritise the tree of life for conservation action and conservation priorities for the reptilian tree of life. But let's rewind briefly. What is the tree of life? Uh, The tree of life is basically how we visualise the evolutionary relationships between every living thing on the planet. Every living organism is interconnected by our shared evolutionary history. And the tree of life is like our family tree, except it spans possibly 10 million species and goes back, you know, maybe more than 3 billion years into our evolutionary past. And why is it so important to look at for conservation? Well, the tree of life is incredibly important to look at because all of the novelties that have arisen or may arise into the future through evolution are captured by this tree of life. 
And the more of the tree we can conserve into the future, the more of these unique aspects of life we can also conserve. And by conserving these unique aspects, not only do we maintain, you know, healthy ecosystems, a wide range of functions um, for the planet itself, but also it's where humans gain a lot of the benefits that provide our quality of life from the natural world. So what is the state of the reptilian tree of life? How much evolutionary history is there in it? And what does this mean for reptiles alive today? The reptilian tree of life is huge. You know, we're looking at close to maybe 200 billion years of cumulative evolutionary history shared by over 11,000 species. And reptiles are some of the oldest vertebrates on the planet. Some groups such as crocodilians and turtles have been evolving independently since the time of the dinosaurs and before then. And certain parts of the reptile tree of life are in in real danger of being lost. Almost 50% of all crocodilians and and almost two-thirds of all turtles and tortoises face extinction. And not only is this high level of risk to these groups worrying for the tree of life, but also these groups are incredibly old. So when we start to lose large chunks of the tree of life here, we see prunings of really deep branches into the tree to keep this tree metaphor going and all of the unique benefits, not only to the environment, but also to humans that come from all of these amazingly unique and diverse reptiles. So what are the biggest threats to reptiles today and how could these impact the reptile tree of life? Well, reptiles are impacted a lot by habitat loss and overexploitation, which is seen across a lot of species on Earth today. One of the ones that's kind of more unique to reptiles, maybe also to amphibians and birds, we're starting to see it more now, is the collection for the pet trade. This can be particularly worrying for the tree of life because people are naturally fascinated by the weird and the wonderful. And a lot of these weird and wonderful species that people are drawn to tend to be quite alone on the tree of life. You know, there's a reason nothing looks like that animal that they might want as a pet, and that's because it's evolved alone. And when they're driven towards extinction like this, we then stand to lose huge amounts of diversity just from single species going extinct due to just how unique they are on the tree of life. Can you think of an example of of a species like that off the top of your head? Uh, the Chinese crocodile lizard is actually a great example. Okay. Um, so the species now is highly threatened. It's disappeared from quite a few parts of its range in northern Vietnam and China. And that a large part of that is thought to be due to its collection for um, the international pet trade over the past uh, few decades. Okay. We mentioned earlier that you're the postdoctoral research scientist for the Edge of Existence program. So for those of you listening who didn't catch episode seven, celebrating 10 years of the Edge program, can you just tell me more about what this is? What's its purpose? And how do these Edge lists help? Okay. The Edge of Existence program, Edge is actually an acronym, which stands for Evolutionarily Distinct and Globally Endangered. And these two parts, the evolutionary distinctiveness and global endangerment, are how we prioritize species for conservation action. So EDGE is concerned about prioritizing species that are unique on the tree of life, this evolutionary uniqueness, and also threatened with extinction. And the way EDGE functions is by producing these priority lists of species which are both unique and threatened. And we use these lists to Um, It's like a call to action for people to prioritize these species. It makes it clear that if these species are lost, you know, there's not much left like them on the planet. And ZSL and EDGE also work specifically to fund and train early career conservationists around the world to work on these priority EDGE species and implement conservation action on the ground. So what are some of the most evolutionarily unique species in the EDGE reptile list? And once you've identified them, does this list then help you prioritize their conservation action? 
Well, how long do you have for me to go through these? <laughs> Too big. Evolutionarily unique reptiles are just the greatest things on the planet. So yeah, there are some absolutely wonderful. Give us some good ones to Google. I mean, I get a lot of flack for this. I'm actually fascinated. My favorite must be the Madagascar blind snake, which is just a tiny pink snake with no eyes that looks like a worm. And it burrows through the coastal sands of northeast Madagascar. And the species was actually thought to be extinct for around 100 years before being rediscovered around 20 years ago. And upon its rediscovery, it was instantly classified as endangered because the area where it was found was being developed. And so, you know, right now we don't even know if this species is, is going to survive, but we didn't though it was still even around for a hundred years and you know it's just it looks like a worm and it's got no eyes and yeah just absolutely fascinating has it lost its eyes through evolution because because of its burrowing behavior yeah so um it's lost its eyes so i think it still has kind of vestigial kind of organs underneath the skin but basically now yeah it finds its way through sandy soil just through sense of touch and smell so that's one of the most evolutionarily unique species in the edge reptile list. How does identifying them turn into prioritizing their conservation action in, in practice? Okay, so I guess there's kind of there's two sides to it. So as I said before, the EDGE program has our initiative, which is supporting EDGE fellows around the world. So these are early career conservationists from developing countries, usually that are aspiring to become conservation leaders. And it just so happens that they're very interested in some of these EDGE species, which we identify. So we provide funding and training for them to implement often the first ever conservation action on some of these threatened and you know, very unique reptiles or any other group that which are priority edge species. And then also another way that it helps catalyze conservation action is through the awareness raising on the edge website and through the work that CETASL does in the zoos, highlighting these species. People learn more about the plight of some of these very overlooked and weird species. Even recently when we launched the edge reptile list, actually, the Mary River turtle got quite a lot of press around the species during the launch because of its unique look with sometimes having a green mohawk made of algae. Is that the punky turtle? Yeah, the punk turtle. The, the public attention that that received from our launch of the Edge Reptile List actually led to a local conservation organisation in, in Australia that was working to protect it, having an influx of donations from around the world to help fund their project. We also have that ability, obviously, with ourselves platform to bring in a lot of eyes to a lot of these overlooked species. Okay, so really building capacity and raising awareness are the two sort of methods to making a difference with conservation action on the ground. Yeah. So are there any reptiles that are overlooked in the edge approach and how do you combat this oversight? Sadly, yes, there are. There are still many reptiles which we know are probably overlooked and then some that we don't even realise are overlooked. And um, this is because we still know far too little about many reptiles to accurately first assess their extinction risk to know whether they're even threatened or not and second to even truly understand where they sit on the tree of life and without knowing where they are on the tree of life or how threatened they are it makes the calculation of any edge kind of score for these species basically impossible to do at all accurately but to combat this and to, to ensure we include as many species as possible in how we prioritize reptiles uh, we have also begun exploring how we can use data beyond the species themselves 
to in, start to infer whether they may be at risk, um, such as the amount of human impact we see across the area where the species are sought to live. And then this gives us kind of a good initial idea of whether certain species about which we know very little may be in urgent need of further research and action. So kind of preempting before you've got the data, preempting where something might be at risk. Yeah. And then we've been lucky enough for some of this research to actually start to inform some grants which have been given to um, various parts of the IUCN's Species Survival Commission to start to try and plug those gaps in knowledge for the extinction risk of some of these very unique species about which we know very little. We've just heard all about Ricky's work with the Edge of Existence programme, and now we're lucky enough to be joined by one of our previous Edge Fellows to find out what he's up to now. Here with me is Emmanuel Amwar, Executive Director of the Threatened Species Conservation Alliance, or Threscol, a Ghanaian NGO dedicated to nature conservation. Emmanuel is currently pursuing a PhD at the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology in Ghana with a research focus on West African slender-snouted crocodiles. So let me start by asking what you were focusing on during your EDGE fellowship. Thank you very much, Ellie, for having me. For the two years of my EDGE fellowship, I worked on uh, the West African uh, slender-snouted crocodile. And so the main focus was to try and um, identify significant populations in the southern Ghana. Uh, I say identify because previous studies couldn't find good population. The focus of my edge fellowship was first to identify areas that we have good population and then further move on to study their movement ecology. And what would you say was your main highlight of that whole you know, two-year period? So what I'm most happy about is in the end, we were able to identify a population that is currently the highest known population outside protected area system in the whole of West Africa, uh, yeah. in the Tanoso, 30-mile stretch of the Tano River. And this is a traditionally protected river that has all the aquatic creatures protected from consumption. So I'm very happy about that particular achievement. And you finished this in 2019 and were awarded the first Segre Species Survival Award for your work conserving the slender-snouted crocodile. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. But what is it that you do now? Tell me about the Threatened Species Conservation Alliance and how this ties into reptile conservation. Okay, so like you mentioned earlier, what we did with the Segre Survivor Award was to first estimate the population of the town or so area that we identified. So with that, we estimated population around 400 individuals within a 100-kilometer stretch at the town or so river. And uh, apart from that, we are working to secure the area. So we are working with the local leaders and then um, trying to see if there's a possibility of creating a protected area. And so with that, we have received support. We are doing feasibility studies, consulting with the chiefs, the local government officials, and all the other stakeholders to see if it's possible to create a protected area for the slender standard crocodile. So how can indigenous knowledge be used in, in natural resources management? Can you give us an example of where traditional beliefs have been used to successfully protect wildlife or wild areas? Okay, so to be able to use indigenous belief in uh, wildlife protection, I think we need three major steps. 
The first one is to identify areas that have such traditions. And then the second step to learn how to use this tradition uh, to protect the species. And finally, is to develop policies or develop initiatives that come to strengthen the existing local tradition. In Ghana, we have several areas that traditional protection has been used. We have the Paga crocodile pond, and this is a pond that we have the West African crocodile in there. And the people believe they have strong link in terms of ancestors. They have strong link with these crocodiles. So they've lived in peace with them for so many years. Uh, we have another situation in the Boabin Fiema monkey sanctuary that the locals believe that the monkeys are their ancestors, the Mona monkeys and the black and white colobos are their ancestors. And so they come to their homes, they live in peace with them. And so that place too is another example where traditional belief has been used in protecting wildlife or let's say natural resources. And then my current uh, study area is also another classic example where traditional beliefs have been used in protecting river, which has led to the protection of the slender snatter crocodile that we are talking about. That's incredible. Am I right in thinking that the local communities in the upper part of the Tano River regard the West African slender snouted crocodile so highly that they even hold crocodile burials when one of them dies? Yes, you are right. Not just crocodile, any creature, any aquatic creature from that river, for example, fish. In fact, in 2019, there was incidents of acid spillage in the Tano River, which led to a lot of fish dying. In fact, the locals gathered all these fish from the river and organized barrier for the fish. And they do the same for crocodiles or freshwater turtles that they find dead because they believe that they are their ancestors and they have strong spiritual connection with them. And so they need to treat them with the highest level of respect. And so with Threskol, with your work with Threskol, you integrate these kind of traditional beliefs into helping to protect the species in each site. Yes, that is correct. Um, Fresco is a grassroots conservation. We believe in uh, working with the locals because they are the immediate people with their resources. And so we always want to use existing uh, understanding to help protect their species. So, for example, we have other two areas that I'm currently working, and they are all traditionally protected areas that they don't hunt dwarf crocodiles. So we, we work with them using the principle of traditional protection. And I think that is really helping us because the locals buy into the idea that we need to protect the species. So wherever we go, we try to identify the existing strength and then utilize it. And then if there's any challenge, we try to see how we can address it. So we've heard about how the crocodiles and other species are protected in the river, but is there a limitation to this protection? What about when the crocodiles, for example, are out of the water? And what are the main threats facing this species in particular? Crocodiles in the river are protected. It doesn't matter where you find it. Even outside the river, you don't need to hunt them. In fact, there are instances that some of the crocs have come out to nearby houses that they have poured libation and other stuff to let it return back to the river. They will not hunt it. The only challenge we face now is a lack of understanding on the part of the locals in terms of the reproductive ecology. They do not understand that the crocodiles need the forest vegetation for nesting. So they farm close to the river. 
And so with time, all the riparian vegetation needed for nesting is being lost. The immediate vegetation are not protected by any tradition. And so they can farm around the issues of water pollution and other stuff. So those are the challenges. But it doesn't matter where you find the crocodile, you can hunt it. Okay. And so what are Threskull's aims for the future of this crocodile's protection? And do you think these strategies can be used? Well, you've already given some other examples, but do you think these strategies can be used in other cases to improve reptile conservation around the world? Okay, so Tresco, our main strategy now for this species is to first identify all the significant wild populations across the country. And then the next strategy is to build local capacity, local volunteers, local conservationists that can help protect the species even in our absence. And then the last one is to build long-term legacy in terms of establishing protected areas for the species. So like we are doing in Tanoso, we want to leave a long-term legacy that even after this project, the area becomes protected. Activities within or around the river is reduced so that the species can be protected. I think these strategies can be employed elsewhere because one, we need to know what is there, which is identifying the population to build the local capacity to help manage it. And then finally, do something that will have long-term protection for the species. So as three steps, you can apply them in different situations yeah, and, yeah. and they should still work. Yeah. And I know you've worked a lot with the West African slender snouted crocodile, but other than this species, do you have another favorite reptile? I think uh, apart from crocodiles, I like chameleons. Uh, chameleons are cool. And one thing I like about chameleons is that they try to adjust to fit into their environment. And I think as human beings, that's what we need to do. Wherever we find ourselves, we need to adjust to suit the environment. In that way, our demand for resources will reduce and that will, will have less impact on the, on the environment. So we need to adjust. And that's something I like about chameleons. They adjust and then slowly they achieve their purpose. That's a great answer. Yeah. Not just a favorite reptile, but a life lesson for humans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Our final guest of this episode is Benjamin Tapley, the Curator of Reptiles and Amphibians here at ZSL and a PhD candidate at the University of Kent. Ben is currently involved in several amphibian and reptile conservation programmes, as well as the IUCN Amphibian Specialist Group, Conservation Breeding Working Group, and he is the Vice Chair of the IASA Amphibian Taxon Advisory Group. We know the main focus of a lot of your work is actually on amphibians, but Ben, I've got to ask first, if you were forced to choose... What would be your favorite reptile or fascinating reptile fact? That's a, that's a tough question because there are literally so many reptiles I could choose from. <laughs> so I'm going to whittle it down to two. Uh, one is the big-headed turtle, which is the focus of some of my work. And the other one is the crocodile lizard. Uh, the crocodile lizard occurs in kind of Vietnam and southern China. And it's also known as the lizard of great sleepiness because it doesn't do very much. And if I was to think about a really cool reptile fact, it's kind of a, a series of facts rolled into one. And it's just how differently they perceive the world to us. 
So some reptiles, for example, have heat sensing pits to help them locate their prey. Crocodiles have sensory organs in their skin that can detect pH and temperature. Some reptiles can see into the UV spectrum. So they perceive the world in a totally different way to humans. And I just find that fascinating. That is incredible. So you have extensive experience of working with reptiles and amphibians in zoo collections, but also in the wild. So in your opinion, now, this is a big question. How can zoos contribute to conservation in the wild? Can you give us an example of this in practice? I actually think that this is a really, really good question because there are lots of ways that zoos can contribute to the conservation of reptiles in the wild. So to begin with, um, most people are familiar with things like conservation breeding programs. And some of these programs breed animals where they're eventually translocated back into the wild. There's been programs in the UK where zoos have been involved in breeding sand lizards and, and their offspring have been have been released. But there's lots more than just conservation breeding that zoos can do. So they can hold animals that are ambassadors for their wild counterparts. So some programs that are managed via a stud book, the zoos involved in those programs donate money to the kind of the coordinating zoo and that will fund a conservation project in the wild. So a good example of that is with the Komodo dragon and that funded work, they've discovered new populations of Komodo dragons, for example. Also, I think what we can do by maintaining animals in zoos is we can gain a, a deeper insight into the species that we have in the zoos because you get to see every kind of part of their life for a long period of time. So just basic questions that we can answer. How long do they live? Um, how do they breed? How many eggs do they lay? A lot of this information is often lacking and that can impede conservation actions. So we can fill in some of the blanks and also that we can just undertake research on, on the animals in our zoos to understand things like the cognitive cognitive abilities of, of reptiles and just have a better understanding of them in general. And then finally, zoos offer a really good opportunity to trial out methods that can be then later used in the field to help conserve species that could be marking techniques, for example, or, or we recently had research coming to London Zoo and we were trialling methods to detect environmental DNA that had been shed from our captive big-headed turtles. So there's a lot that zoos can do to help conservation of, of species in the wild. Wow, that's a huge range of things. It was clearly just a, an amazing opportunity for really in-depth knowledge and for that to feed back into wild conservation. So what reptile conservation programmes are you currently involved in? So at the moment, a lot of the work that I do uh, on reptiles is focused around our Edge of Existence program. The projects I'm involved in at the moment, primarily in Vietnam. So I'm working with our um, Edge fellow, Ha, and he's developing viable release strategies for big-headed turtles that have been seized from the illegal wildlife trade. So he's developing basically a, a mechanism where we can screen for genetics, look at what pathogens the seized turtles may have, and then develop the best practice where we can translocate those animals and monitor them once they've been released. I'm also involved in another project with another Edge Fellow working in Vietnam and she's working on the crocodile lizards and she's using eDNA to detect hopefully new populations of crocodile lizards, which is really, really exciting stuff. And then more widely, um, the team I work with, one of our team members is uh, travels out to Nepal every year and he's helping advise some of the head starting facilities for Gariel, one of the most threatened crocodilians on the planet. So if we focus in on, on one of your projects on yeah. the big-headed turtle, apart from clearly having extreme self-confidence, what's special about the big-headed turtle? Why does it need conserving? 
Well, to begin with, there's nothing like the big-headed turtle. It's the only member of its genus. It's completely irreplaceable. There's nothing like it. It has a really big head, which is too big to kind of retract into its shell. It's got a really weird uh, long tail. And the reason that they're threatened is that they're being exploited for meat. So they're being collected in a non-sustainable way and traded throughout uh, Southeast Asia and Southern China. So this trade seems to be increasing in recent years. And that could be because um, other species that were more commonly traded have gone into decline and there's been a shift into trading this species. Or it could be just that we're getting a better grasp of which wildlife species are being traded in Southeast Asia. So they're, they're in real, real trouble. Okay. And just purely out of my own interest, what's the evolutionary reason for their big head and strangely long tail? Do you know? That's a good question. Um, for the, the big head, there's a few ideas. One is that they will often eat things like crabs and shellfish. So they probably need quite strong muscles to kind of open those food items up. But they're also really, really feisty and territorial. So they probably would bite chunks out of each other if they were given the opportunity. So that's probably the reason for the head. Uh, the tail, I'm less sure about, but I have read that the tail could act as kind of a prop when they're scrabbling over those rocky boulders. They've got really good claws on their feet as well to kind of get a grip on stones and in, in fast flowing streams so that's the idea so feisty little reptiles <laughs> yeah so in this project you seize them from the illegal wildlife trade and ideally rehabilitate them for release into the wild in vietnam but i'm guessing it isn't as simple as that what are the main challenges to overcome or things to be considered for rehabilitating and releasing animals and these turtles in particular yeah so we're working with the asian turtle program of Indomima Conservation and the project in Vietnam is head up by Ha, our EDGE fellow, and uh, they're working in collaboration with the Turtle Conservation Centre in Cuc Phuong National Park. And this conservation centre will receive custom seizures or border force seizures from, from all over Vietnam. And often these turtles are intercepted via kind of quite long trade routes and the turtles themselves may not be in a very good state when they're seized. So, for example, one of the methods for hunting big-headed turtles is to use baited hooks so quite often when you see a radiograph of a turtle may have ingested a hook and that may be embedded inside it other turtles may have cracked carapaces so the most important thing is to kind of get the turtles through that initial confiscation stage you know nurse them back to health make sure they're they're feeding so that's kind of phase one. And then phase two is if, if animals are going to be translocated, you need to think about the risk associated with that translocation. And there's a few. So in the case of the big-headed turtles, there's actually several different subspecies. And each of those subspecies occurs within kind of a defined geographic area. And they are different genetically. So the, these differences are probably local adaptations that are important for the survival of that particular population. So we don't want to be mixing different kind of lineages of turtles. So the next step is to do genetic screening of the turtles to make sure that the release site that will be selected will be in the range where that subspecies would occur in the wild. And then the other step is to look at the pathogens that these turtles may have, because um, when you move an animal, you're also moving its pathogens and its parasites. 
sites. So that's probably the most challenging part because we have very, very little data with regard to what pathogens wild turtles may have. And the trouble is that there are so few wild turtles left in that part of the world that it may be impossible or very, very difficult to get that data. But part of this project has been monitoring sites in the wild where we can try and get that, that data from wild turtles and also screening for pathogens for the turtles that have been seized. So it's kind of like a, a giant risk assessment, if you like, to kind of gauge whether or not an animal should be released. And then we need to identify the release sites. So then it's a case of going to those sites and engaging with the local communities and seeing whether they're still exploiting turtles and explaining that this exploitation is illegal if they don't already know. And then once you've kind of done all that and you're confident that when you release the turtles that they're not going to be immediately poached again, um, is to monitor the animals once they've been released. And this can be quite a prolonged process, very labour intensive. So in the case of the big-headed turtle, Ha and his team have attached a radio telemetry devices to a subset of the turtles that have been released. And he'll be monitoring those over, over time, checking their weights and looking to see whether they've established home ranges. So it's a very, very long process and also quite an expensive process too, to get all those samples processed and then actually having a, a team of people in the field to monitor the animals once they've been released. Yeah, I can imagine. And what kind of habitats do big-headed turtles live in? What's the sort of release sites? Are they a huge range of sites or is it all one type of forest or cast? Or Yeah, it's typical that the, the animals we choose to work in work with often live in the most difficult habitats. From what I gather, they're very steep gradient streams, lots of rocks, waterfalls. Um, so, you know, when Ha's out in the field, he's wearing kind of a crash helmet, um, abseiling. It's fairly, fairly tricky. Um, but yeah, they're all montane um, or submontane tropical forest for this species. And where do they like to live within that or where can you find them within that? So typically they're they're occurring uh, kind of under kind of large boulders and in uh, streamside caves. So even when they're in the area where they know the turtle is, it's often quite tricky to then actually see it. They may have the signal, but actually getting a visual verification that the turtle's alive and healthy can be quite tough. I can imagine they also look like a little pile of rocks as well. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> What's the future of the project? What's the next step? The, the next step for the work is really just seeing whether this element of it has been successful. So at the moment, the turtles have been released. The teams are doing the post-release monitoring and it's to see whether the turtles have established home ranges to kind of ensure that the animals are, are surviving in the wild and that they're gaining body condition and growing normally and all those types of things. The idea of this work was to develop the method that is more in line with what the IUCN would recommend as a, as a translocation pathway, trying to to build best practice for these kinds of translocations because typically in many parts of the world animals are seized from the illegal wildlife trade and they may be released without any of these steps being taken which could be quite risky so it's about developing a method that's then scalable to other projects on other turtles and potentially on other taxa as well so pangolins or primates or small carnivores even so hopefully it's kind of scaling up no pun intended <laughs> yeah no pun intended <laughs> there'd be many more projects like this in the future so ben you're the as we said the curator of reptiles and amphibians here at zsl what species can you recommend that visitors could go and see at london zoo or, or whipsnade zoo themselves I would suggest that you can go and see my two 
favourite reptiles. So we actually have the crocodile lizards at both London and at Whipsnade Zoos. Uh, we also have um, big-headed turtles that were seized from the illegal wildlife trade at London Zoo. They're on exhibit. And then we have, you know, all the things you'd expect to see at, at a zoo. We've got critically endangered Philippine crocodiles and a king cobra at London. And at Whipsnade, we've got some absolutely fantastic, brightly coloured uh, panther chameleons. Oh, wow. Amazing. And obviously the very famous um, reptile house from Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What is the next step for reptile conservation? What is one thing that you think must be done next to make an impact? I think I think very much it's turning our assessments into action. I suppose particularly if you're coming from, I don't know, the kind of background that I've come from, it's once you think, oh, the assessments are done, excellent, I shall now move on to the next thing. It's, well, the next thing should be to take these assessments and turn them into action, not moving on to doing more assessments and so on. Although we obviously need those, we also need to figure out how reptiles are doing over time. That's probably the final missing piece of the puzzle, but also really is to just keep our foot on the pedal and make sure that reptiles are included in any of the conservation decision-making that's out there. I, I think this is very easy if you let me give you two things. So I guess specific to reptiles, what more people need is to recognize that conserving reptiles is worthwhile and important. And we as scientists and communicators, conservationists, we need to help people see the wonder and beauty in reptiles. You know, just how amazing they are first and then how at risk they are and how much we stand to lose around us if we don't care for reptiles going into the future. And then second, a bit more general, but definitely applies to reptiles for the sake of all life on the planet is basically eliminate meat from our diets wherever possible. We don't have to wait for governments to act, we can start acting ourselves too at the same time. I think it's awareness creation. Awareness creation I think is key because in our part of the world reptiles are not much recognized. For example in Ghana if you mention snake everybody is thinking of killing it because they don't know the ecological importance of snakes. They don't see they don't see why you should protect snakes. So awareness creation is key for people to one understand the ecological importance and then two to understand the threats the species are currently facing. The most important thing we can do is be myth busters. Lots of people don't like snakes, but they find uh, that how fast a lizard moves quite terrifying. And obviously people think that crocodiles can eat them, uh, which they can. But it's about bringing out those things about reptiles that are really cool. You know, like the fact that they see the world in such a different way, that many reptiles are really caring parents, for example. They have social hierarchies. All of these things that people wouldn't typically associate with a reptile, I, I think if more people knew about about these facts that they may be more engaged with reptiles and then ultimately hopefully more willing to conserve them or at least adopt behaviors that wouldn't be detrimental to them. Thank you to all our speakers who took part in today's episode and of course thank you to you our listeners. If you enjoyed today's recording don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. As a charity, your support helps ZSL to care for the amazing animals in our zoos and protect wildlife around the world through our science and conservation work. If you're able to, you can donate on our website at www.donate.zsl.org or join ZSL as a fellow to get closer to conservation and science.